Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is Andreas Elpidoro, the author of Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life. Andreas leads us on a fascinating discussion that covers a lot of ground related to happiness and the role emotions play in our pursuit of a meaningful life. We cover why what makes life difficult is also what makes life worth living why there's more to the good life than happiness, a lot more, the surprising role boredom plays in the good life, and why we shouldn't always kill it with our phones, how frustration energizes and informs us, what we can learn from Andrew Weil's pursuit of Fermat's last theorem, the surprising result of the IKEA effect, and what that tells us about happiness, and why moving towards our goals may be the ultimate state of happiness. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andreas as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Andreas Alpidoro. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Andreas, welcome to The Good Life. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. And we're going to talk about your new book, just came out last month, Propelled, How Boredom, Frustration, and Anticipation Lead Us to the Good Life, published by Oxford University Press. And I love the book. It's a great read. It's full of wonderful stories and packed full of research. And you make the claim in the book, I thought we'd start with this, that the secret to happiness just might be unhappiness, not unmitigated unhappiness, but the highs and lows that we experience through life. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? I think some things you truly appreciate them when they're not there. Happiness is one of them. And different considerations point to that conclusion. So we know that our brains are excellent at adapting. If we receive the same stimulation of over and over again, we begin to ignore it. We act as if it's not there. And something similar happens with our emotions. We're excellent at adapting. And this is both good news and bad news. It is good news because we can adapt even when things are not going our way, even when we're dealing with adversity and suffering. But if we're interested in happiness, if we want to achieve happiness, it turns out that we're also really good at adapting often very quickly when things are going our way. So too much happiness or happiness for a protracted amount of time, it ceases to seem like happiness to us. We become used to it. It becomes a new norm. And so to feel happy again, we need to get to a new high point. And so the idea is pretty simple, I think. It's also true. We need to appreciate the downs of life in order to appreciate the high points. That's something I can relate to. And you talk about this famous thought experiment in the book by Robert Nozick that really brings this out. And maybe you could explain it. It's, I think you call it the pleasure experience machine. This thought experiment is given by Robert Nozick, and it's a very interesting idea. And I, I introduce it often in my classes. I talk to people about it. So you have this machine that's supposed to give you a life filled with happiness. So the catch here is that you have to give up your life. But in exchange, you're getting a life full of happiness. So this thought experiment tests our willingness to give up our current life to a different one, 
that is created by the machine, but it is also guaranteed that to be a happy one. Now, most people don't like the machine. If you start thinking about it, will you hook up to the machine? I wouldn't. And I think most people with whom I talk about the machine, they don't want it either. And I think there's some reasons that explain our apprehension. First, life in the machine doesn't seem to be real or genuine. It is made up by the machine. And we're concerned by that. And that shows that we don't just want happiness or any sort of happiness. We want happiness that is based on reality. This might be hard earned happiness. Took us a while to get there, but it's real. We made it. We conquered it. And at the same time, I think people don't just merely want happiness. Often we might be willing to sacrifice happiness for other things that matter to us. And one of them might be the ability to do what we want in life. So the ability to be the author of my life, it's important to me. And I'm willing to give up some happiness in order to get that back. So what the thought experiment shows is that happiness might be good, but it isn't sufficient. It isn't the only thing that matters for the good life. There's so much more to the good life than happiness. The thought of getting hooked up to the machine, to me, I couldn't take the inauthenticity. I want my life to be authentic. I want relationships to be real. I want experiences to be real. And I'm willing to take the downside in exchange to know that it's a real experience so that when I do experience the upside, that it's my own life. And so I think you're really hitting on something important here. So we talked about the ups and downs of life are important, that the periods of unhappiness are what make happiness so real to us. And it reveals the happiness, it creates the happiness. And the second thing that you're hitting on here is that we want our life to be our own. We want to be the authority of our own life. We want it to be authentic. That means that we take on our own goals, we set our own priorities, and we go after those priorities. And it's a bit of a struggle sometimes to get to those goals. And I guess what you're saying is the struggle is really important in happiness. Yes, that's correct. And one of the points of the book, our emotions do a lot of work for us. So they help us when we struggle, but they're not just there when we struggle. They're there partly to get us out of those struggles. And so we have to work to help ourselves get to a better state when we have found the low points so we can get back to the high points and appreciate the transition. The transition is what is really important for us. It shapes our lives, gives us meaning, and it makes us feel better. It gives us this feeling of authenticity, of meaningfulness. And once we have that, we also get happiness along the way. You talk about the role of emotions and the case you make is that the emotions reveal. They're ready-made, they develop, they envelop inside of us, and we recognize them. And there's something authentic about emotions. They are clues. They come from our culture, possibly, or from nature, and they should not be ignored. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of emotion with happiness and seeking happiness. This is a question that gets to the core of who we are as human beings. I think one of the essential elements of us is the capacity to experience emotions. And so as we go on and live our lives, we feel a lot of things. We get sensations, we get emotions. What happens is that, take any example, take fear, for instance, right? I experience fear when I see something or I'm in close proximity to something that might be dangerous or harmful to my well-being. So in that case, I get this reaction, this emotional reaction that triggers 
a whole set of behaviors in me. It tells me, look, this is something that might harm you. And at the same time, it tells me or motivates me to do certain things. When we consider the whole host of emotions that we're having, it's difficult and sometimes might be overwhelming. But without them, it will be really hard for us to know how to live our lives. It will be hard for us to know when we are threatened, when something might be dangerous to our bodies, when something is boring or uninteresting to us. So we need all those clues, but we're fortunate not just to experience them, but to also be moved by them. So they contain more than just information. They're powerful mechanisms that can take us from state A to state B. And hopefully, if we know how to get there or how to listen to them, the state B will be a better state than the one that we began. Well, you talk about three emotions that play a role in the good life, boredom, frustration, and anticipation. And I can understand the anticipation and the frustration, how the struggle can lead to the good life. Boredom actually surprised me when it came up in your book and you made a great case for it. So let's start with boredom. What role possibly could boredom play in helping us achieve the good life? I have to say, I'm happy that you were surprised. It means like I have something new to say in some way. I think the easiest way to see the value of boredom is to talk about pain and compare it briefly to pain. So consider pain. Pain is an unpleasant sensation. No one likes to be in pain, or most of us do not. And we go to great lengths to get rid of pain. However, the capacity to experience boredom is good for us. It is a signal that warns us that damage is being done to our bodies and that can protect us from future or further damage. And so I conceive of boredom as playing a similar function in our lives. First, it is again a signal, like most emotions, it informs us of something. And specifically, boredom tells us that our current situation is not satisfying to us, it's not fulfilling to us, it's not meaningful to us. So it tells us that okay, look, what you're doing right now, it's not what you should be doing. At the same time, and because we don't like to be bored, and because we want to stop feeling bored, we do a lot of things to get out of that situation. So boredom acts as its own driving mechanism to get us out of boredom. It's a push that helps us get out of the unsatisfactory, unfulfilling, or meaningless situation and into one that hopefully will be more in line with our desires, and goals, and wishes. My father once gave me some advice, and it always stuck with me. I was young, probably 11 or 12 years old, and I was bored, and I mentioned this to my dad. And he said, you should never be bored, because if you're bored, that means you don't have a goal, and you could be using that time to achieve that goal. And that always stuck with me. And whenever I'm bored, I often think about that. And Unfortunately, I haven't been as bored recently as the past, or maybe I should say fortunately, because of the phones that we have in our pockets that seem to be the all ubiquitous cure to boredom. And I'd like to talk about both those things. Maybe we could start with the comment from my father. It seems to be in line with what you're talking about. Yes, and I think it's a great diagnosis of what goes on when we experience boredom. Boredom is there to help us go find our goals, go pursue our goals. And so sometimes it might be our fault that we're not chasing after our goals, but sometimes we want. Right? We don't make up all our choices. We cannot completely determine our situation. Either way, and 
often this might be a challenge if we're not control for a situation. Either way, however, it is important to know when boredom arises. And it's even more important to know, I believe, why it arises. And this relates to the second part of your question. If I'm bored because I'm commuting and my bus is running late, for instance, it tells me that I'm not there. I want to get to my destination. So I'm not quite there yet. So I'm feeling bored. But if you're bored with your occupation, with your job, with your family, with your partner, that's a more serious signal. It tells you that there's something deep about your life, something significant that is just not giving you meaning, that is not satisfying to you. And so we have to find ways of recovering this lost meaning and lost satisfaction. Boredom can only do certain things. It tells us and it helps us, gives us this initial push. If we're lucky enough, if we have the capacity to get out of our situation, change, we can do it. Sometimes, however, it's going to be hard. So that, I think, relates a little bit to the question about, you know, are we less bored now with phones? Is it okay to use our phones? Is it okay to play apps and do games and all that? I think, yes, as long as we know what we're doing exactly, as long as we know we are distracting ourselves. And as long as the boredom that we're fighting or trying to alleviate is not a symptom of some kind of fundamental, profound lack of meaning or dissatisfaction with our lives. It concerns me a little bit that we have this ready-made cure for boredom that we carry around with us because it could prevent us from asking those deeper questions from time to time. Not every time you're bored, you pull out your phone, you need to ask the question. But I think I could see potentially someone who is experiencing the more serious kind of boredom, the boredom with a partner, the boredom with where they are in their life, with their career, their lack of goals or their lack of struggle towards some higher state or, or some achievement. And if they're constantly addressing that boredom with or curing it with just playing a game on their phone or looking at their phone or looking at Facebook, years and years could go by that you're not going to get back. That would be really sad for that person that they didn't use that time more wisely. And maybe one reason they didn't was because they weren't forced to reflect. So I think there's a concern there. You're right. And it perhaps can spiral in some kind of deeper emotional state or deeper existential crisis there. So if you start ignoring the signals of boredom, or if you're unlucky or unfortunate, incapable of dealing with it, it might change into something more long-lasting. It can turn into depression of some sort. It can be deeply unsatisfied with your life, and that can lead to other complications. The study of boredom, it is and it isn't that new, but we do know that there are two types of boredom that we talk about in their study. There's the boredom that we experience, most of us, when I'm waiting for the bus or I'm trying to find something on television to watch and there's nothing, or I'm waiting for a friend to come. And there's a more profound or more long-lasting boredom that is pretty much, I'm bored with my life. And we know that that kind of boredom is bad. One of the most frequently found correlations between that type of boredom and depression. So we want to read the signals of boredom early on if we can. We want to use boredom to our advantage before it turns into something more dangerous and more long-lasting. You tell a fascinating story in the book about Andy Warhol, and he, he made a movie. I had not heard of this movie. It was called Empire in the 1960s. And you'd think, oh, Andy Warhol made a movie. It's going to have visuals and about, be about pop culture, and it'll be exciting You know, coming from this avant-garde artist and whatnot. But actually, he pointed a camera at the Empire State Building, and it runs for eight hours and five minutes, and 
nothing really happens other than just the camera pointing at the Empire State Building. And people were running out of the theaters. They got so bored so quickly, demanding their money back. It just created this incredible reaction. Some people watched it and had these incredible experiences. What was he trying to achieve there? And what does that tell us about boredom? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I had some profound thing to say. It's such a wonderful use of boredom in art. And I think we still don't have a good idea of how boredom figures in art. We do know that a bunch of good art is boring. Slow cinema, movies like The Empire, minimalist compositions, operas, or The Ring Cycle, Wagner's, and all of that, those become boring because of their length of the way they're composed and all that. I think different people use boredom in different ways, especially in an aesthetic context or if you're a creator. It's a very risky enterprise. So imagine you're an artist and you're intentionally creating something that you know it's going to bore audience, your viewers, your, the people who are going to come and engage with your product. And so you better be really good at giving them something else in return or allowing them on their own to think about what this product is giving you or this artwork is going to do for them. So I think Empire is one of those cases. It's an experiment. It's an avant-garde case. You know, you go, you try to watch this. Are you really going to watch it for eight hours? Probably not. But can you get something out of it? Is that boredom might allow you to reflect on some aspects of what movies are? And some people talk about that, that Warhol's movie shows us that movies are about time or the passage of time in some way. Or could you use that time to reflect upon yourself? And I think different artists are experimenting with this dimension of boredom and trying to get something out of it. My guess is he was trying to get people to ask questions about themselves and think about time and think about their life and reflect in some way. There is a connection between time and boredom that you bring up. When we are bored, time moves so slow. And it reminds me of those summers when I was younger and I had so much time and I would be bored at times and it seemed like the summer would go on forever. And then other experiences when through life, when there's a lot going on and we're in the middle of flow state, time seems to speed up so much. What's going on there? There seems to be something about time and happiness too. And I think you might be getting at it through this angle with boredom. That's a great point. And I think the beginning of this book began with a thought. And the thought was, what can we learn about ourselves when we reflect on the passage of time? And I really wanted to explore this idea. What does the passage of time tell us about ourselves? And so the idea here with boredom is that you described it very well. When we're bored, it feels like we're stuck in the present. We just want to get over it. We just want to do something else. The present keeps dragging on. And it's true, not just for boredom, but for a number of states of dissatisfaction, is that we don't want to be in the present. So we start thinking about the passage of time itself, and that only makes the situation worse. Once you start focusing on how slowly time passes or that time doesn't pass fast or doesn't move fast in this situation, it slows it down. And so I think this experience of being in a slow state or feeling stuck is a realization that we have somehow become disconnected from things that matter to us. And so boredom is one of those signals, one of those realizations that what I'm doing right now is not what I want to be doing. I'm disconnected from the sources of meaning and satisfaction. And so we should really try to get out of that state. So reflecting on the passage of time, especially when it moves slowly, 
And there are a lot of experiments and studies that suggest this idea that when you find yourself in such a situation, it is often a case or a symptom that we're not happy or we're just not satisfied. So the takeaway for me for boredom is that it's a signal. It could be telling us that something is wrong, that we need to make a correction, and we shouldn't just ignore it. We shouldn't push it away with our phone constantly, that it is requiring us to reflect and ask a deeper question. But let's move on to the next two emotions that you take up that really make this argument about happiness that sort of propel us in our life and guide and lead us to the good life. Let's talk about frustration. What is it about frustration that can help us? Frustration, I think, is greatly misunderstood in some ways. I think it has a bad reputation and it shouldn't. Many things that we do in life, I believe, many of our achievements have been fueled by frustration. And in essence, and this is where I'm getting, this is the core that I found in the book, is that frustration does two things for us. First, it energizes us. Frustration is a negative experience, a negative emotion that arises when one of our goals becomes blocked. So we want something, but I can't get it. We can't get it. So in the face of this obstacle, of this blockage, we become frustrated. But this emotion is what fuels us. It motivates us. It energizes and allows us to just keep trying, trying to reach the goal. In addition, just like most of our emotional states, frustration is wonderfully informative about what matters and doesn't matter to us. And if we reflect upon the things that frustrate us, we find that, look, I'm not frustrated by things that don't matter to me. I'm frustrated by things that matter to me and I cannot get them. So I'm not frustrated by the fact that I cannot fly, right? but I will become frustrated if, let's say, I cannot write anymore or if I cannot see my family or my loved ones. And so where there is frustration, there is value. You talk about this as an example, this video game that really caught my attention, QWOP by Bennett Foddy. And he created a game that's sort of addictive, but the whole idea of the game is just it's so frustrating that people sort of love it. They love to be in that state of frustration because it's that struggle. And you're moving towards, I guess, winning this game in some way. But there's something about the human condition that really likes to be in that. We like to be in the fight. We like to be in the struggle. We want to be moving towards something. That, and frustration is preventing that. And we're pushing against it. And that's a great insight. I never thought before starting researching this book, I never thought that someone want to design games, that their sole purpose, it seems, is their purpose is to frustrate us. But there are a few of them out there, and there's this special aesthetic quality to frustration. And I think video games is a great context, right? You can be frustrated. There are not high stakes there, but we want it. And you're right to say that this perhaps points to something major or something more significant about our human condition. We enjoy the frustration. We enjoy the challenge. And if you're a gamer, you want to be frustrated by the game because you want to feel that the game is hard, that it's challenged. And so there's this element of frustration. It invites people not to give up, not to stop playing the game, but to keep trying. And again, just like with being an artist and trying to bore your audience to let them think of something else, something greater. If you're a good game designer, you have to be careful with your dosage of frustration, right? You have to frustrate them to a certain extent. You don't want to reach a 
breaking point where I'm going to start breaking my phone or throwing my computer away because I'm so frustrated. You have to f- give me enough frustration that's going to keep me motivating. And I think games like WOP or QWOP, I don't know how to pronounce it, and getting over it with Bennett Foddy do exactly like that. They're really frustrating, but because they are, they're addictive and you want to play them. You have another example in the book which really struck me. I thought it was really fascinating, which is the story of Andrew Wiles, who's a mathematician who eventually solved a very famous proof called Fermat's Last Theorem. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and what Andrew's experience tells us about frustration and being sort of blocked towards achieving our goals and what the role that plays in, in happiness and you know, how it's an important piece. This is a fascinating story. It's one of my favorite stories. It began many years ago. I think it began in 1630s when French mathematician Fermat was studying an old mathematics textbook called Arithmetica. And he was going through the problems, solving the problems, considering them. And he reached a particular problem, which was pretty easy. And it's easy if, you know, if you've done math before. It says, divide a square number into the sum of two numbers. And so nobody thinks that this kind of problem would have given Fermat any difficulty. But what he did, this is the beginning of 400 years almost of struggles, in the margins, he wrote a different problem. And he said, I found a truly marvelous proof to this far more complicated problem. But unfortunately, the margin is too narrow to contain it. And he didn't write the solution or anything. And so what was the problem? The problem basically says that there are no three positive integers, A, B, and C, that can satisfy the equation A to the nth power plus B to the nth power equals C to the nth power for any integer of value n that is greater than two. You know, once you start thinking about this, the beauty of this problem for Matt's challenge is that it's pretty simple. You write it. It's really easy to write it. And in some cases, it's easy to consider it. You just need to find the right numbers to satisfy the equation. At the same time, this task is almost impossible. Lots of people thought we'll never solve it because it's an equation about an infinite number of numbers. And so lots of people have tried. And it took about 350 years or so, I think, until. Andrew Willis gave the first successful proof of Fermat's theorem, and he proved Fermat right. Yeah, you had it. Well, you never wrote it, but you know, after a lot of work, we can have the solution. And what I emphasize in the book is that what's special about finally getting to the proof? I think what's special about it, what's interesting for our purposes, is the fact that it couldn't have been done without an experience, experience of profound frustration. So when Willis was trying to figure this out, went through protracted moments of frustration, and that's what kept him energized, gave his life meaning, and gave the theorem such a central place in his life. This is all he wants to be doing, but it's because it was a challenge. It was such a profound challenge. If he wasn't frustrating, I don't think anybody would have spent all this time trying to solve the problem. Yeah, he said something very profound about being stuck. And I think we can all relate to that. You go through some experience in your life, maybe you have some goal, something you want to achieve, and you're working hard, but you get to a point where it doesn't feel like you're making progress. 
that's the point where so many of us give up. That's where frustration sets in. And it's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm going to give up. And, and let me just read the quote, if I may, so we can reflect on it. He said, now what you have to handle when you start doing mathematics as an older child or as an adult is accepting the state of being stuck. People don't get used to that. People find this very stressful. Even people who are very good at mathematics sometimes find this hard to get used to, and they feel that's where they're failing, but it isn't. It's part of the process, and you have to accept and learn to enjoy that process. I think there's something very profound about that. It's a wonderful quote, and it works for math, for mathematics. It works for most things in life. It fits so well with the theme. It's this idea that we find ourselves stuck and boredom, frustration, even anticipation. I consider the states in which temporarily, at least, that we're stuck. But we have to deal with, with this being stuck, and we have to know what to do. So patience in the case of mathematics or perseverance, using frustration in a way to mobilize us, all those are techniques that we're going to use. And, and it is part of life. We want flow, but we cannot always get flow. So we need to understand how to operate how to deal with the stops and then how to restart our life. And so I think frustration is one of those tools that we have at our disposal. What I took away from this section of your book about frustration is that frustration, like boredom, is a signal. It's telling us something. It's, it's a signal that we care deeply about something. I mean, when we're frustrated with someone in our life, it's because we care about them. Apathy is the worst emotion you could feel towards someone because it's the signal that you really don't care. But when you're frustrated, you care. When you're frustrated with your significant other or as a parent, if you're frustrated with a child or so forth, it's telling us something. But the second part, and you talk a lot about it in this part of the book, is that it's the struggle and the sacrifice after the frustration or to push through the frustration, to push through being stuck. It's that struggle and the sacrifice that leads to happiness, that leads to the good life, that allows us to feel like we've achieved something and just brings us that sense of joy. And so those two things for me, they go right after frustration in the process, if you can push through. There are different ways of seeing that aspect of frustration. And I talk a little bit about this very famous IKEA study, or it's a study that shows an IKEA effect. And this is a study that was done by Michael Norton at Harvard University and colleagues. It's an ingenious study. What they did, they got a bunch of participants, they divided them into two groups. And so the first group was giving an already assembled piece of furniture from Ikea. This was, I think, a box, so nothing fancy, standard box. And the second group was given the same piece of furniture, but this time they had to put it together themselves. They had to assemble it. So the researchers gave the groups equal amount of time. The first group was just looking at it. The second group put it together. And then they came back and they were like, okay, tell us how much money you're willing to spend on the box to take it home with you. And it turns out in the experiment that the second group, the group that put work into assembling the box, were willing to pay more money. And that result should surprise us, right? And if we're thinking, if we're strictly economic beings, we're thinking in this rational way, well, effort assembling the box is effort, and that should translate into cost. So at the end of the day, we'll be willing to spend less money to get the box, but they didn't, and we don't. And I think that's an indication that effort 
difficulty, frustration, don't take away things from us, but they add value. They make things more meaningful to us, more valuable, and we want them more partly because we've invested resources in them, because they frustrate us. We want that experience. We want that struggle in some sense. It doesn't make sense economically, which just sort of blows your mind, but it reveals something about how we're wired. And it's important to take that into consideration when we think about our own lives and what we devote ourselves to, what we're willing to sacrifice for, what we're willing to struggle for, to push through. You also talk about the famous quote from George Mallory, you know, the English climber, I think it was the 20s or 30s, so before Sir Edmund Hillary got to the top of Mount Everest, Mallory had several expeditions and he was famously asked, why? Why are you trying to climb this mountain? It's a death wish. It doesn't make any sense, at least to the reporter. And he said, because it's there. And you said there's something really profound about that answer, maybe even more than what Mallory expected or was trying to say there. There's a lot of discussion about that answer. <laughs> Those words might be the most famous words in the history of mountaineering, right? What does it mean? Because it's there. It seems so obvious, right? I examined that answer through the lens of frustration. And I think basically means trying to figure out why, why climb? Or in Mallory's case, in the case of a lot of people climbing those mountains, is why risk it all, right? And the answer, it can only hardly be found in some objective structure that we call Mount Everest. Yeah, of course, he wanted to climb Mount Everest because it was there, or it is there. At the same time, and more deeply, more fundamentally, he wanted to overcome a great challenge. And the challenge is the thing that was there behind them. It took the form of Mount Everest, but it was a challenge that he set up for himself. And it was the thing that motivated him. And because it was so challenging, because it was almost impossible, unimaginable task, it was the task that drove him to do this. And so trying to understand that, you know, often when we, we ask ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? I think often behind the first answer that we gave lies a deeper answer, and that has to do with how we structure our lives and how we place meaning in the different components of our lives. Different objects in our lives have different amount of meanings. And so frustration, effort, difficulty, challenge, all those things together help us structure our lives. And often when we say, I do that because it gives me meaning, that might be a different way of saying that I do that because it's challenge and I like the challenge. The challenge leads me to a life that is better with the challenge than without the challenge in it. Well, let's talk about that. The third emotion or emotional state, I should say, that can help guide us towards the good life. And it's anticipation, that feeling of anticipation for something to come. When I was studying anticipation, I found two major sources of value that speak to anticipation. The first one comes from existentialism. The second one comes from psychology and the cognitive sciences. And Existentialism is or was a 20th century philosophical movement that concerned itself primarily with human freedom, what it means to live a free, authentic life. And a central aim of existentialism is that our lives are never complete. As long as we're living them, there are still lives in their making. And as a result, existentialists think that we're always more than what we are right now. And there's a beautiful line in Beckett's Endgame where Clove asks, do you believe in the life to come? And Ham responds saying, mine was always that. And the first time I read that line, I thought, this is exactly right. There's so much more to life 
than the present and our past. And we always anticipate, we always wait for our future. That, I think, is not a bad thing. Who we are right now is defined partly by who we want to be. So say I want people to know about the book, right? Well, to do that, I need to do something right now. I need to do something in the present. So my future desires, what I anticipate to become, what I anticipate in the future, tell me of what I need to do right now. So anticipating or running ahead of ourselves is not a bad thing. It's a necessary way of determining how to act. And so we need a clear conception of our future. That's the source of value that I found in existentialism. But there's another source of value that I talk about a lot in the chapter that comes from psychology and the cognitive sciences. And if you start looking at studies that consider our ability to anticipate and look into the future and look forward to the future, you find that anticipation is beneficial to us. Not only does it allow us to take pleasure right now when I'm thinking about, well, I need a vacation. I can't wait for it. I'm thinking about it right now and it gives me pleasure. We also know, however, that anticipation provides us with a whole set of health benefits and it drives our lives forward. It gives us meaning. So overall, thinking about the future, it's a benefit to us. I think if we can be in the state of anticipation and enjoy that, that it can be very helpful for bringing joy and bringing meaning and purpose to our life. It gets to enjoying the struggle. It gets to enjoying the, the present. We know we're moving towards something and we're anticipating that, but it's the movement. That's where life really happens in the present and in the moving towards it. We know that when we get there, to kind of bring this full circle back to the way you started, you mentioned how we habituate whatever state we're in, it tends to become normal. So we know when we achieve that goal, maybe it's writing a book, maybe it's achieving a certain dollar amount in your bank account, that when you get there, it's going to become normal and you're going to set another goal. And that's okay. That's part of the human condition. But the anticipation, again, is a sort of signal to say, hey, you're on track. And then for me, it's kind of like enjoy the moment you're in. Thanks for that comment. I, I think there's a little bit of pushback and that's good. I think it's exactly right to say that we need to keep moving our anticipatory goals. That is what we anticipate to happen. That is a, something that keeps moving. It's a bad idea to anticipate, let's say, I don't know, I need that much money in my bank account. That's what I'm anticipating for. And then once you reach there, you stop anticipating for anything else. I think part of anticipation, part of the use of anticipation is that it's always there no matter what. And I wonder whether part of the question also has to do with, is it always good to anticipate or will there be sometimes that anticipation might get us out of a happy present? Is that a worry? Yes. If you're constantly thinking that happiness is in the future, it tends to take away from happiness in the present. Yeah, that's great. And I think what's important about anticipation or how to use anticipation right, it has to always come back to the present. It has to inform us about what we're doing. It's hard to describe it in some ways. I don't think of anticipation as this free-floating way of thinking or entity that just looks at the future at all times. But it's kind of an arrow that goes to the future and comes back and it tells me what I need to be doing in the present. So if I'm meeting my anticipatory goals, anticipation might tell me, keep doing what you're doing in some way because I want more 
of that because that's what I want. I want to spend more time with my family or I want to work on this more. We need to figure out a way of how to kind of calibrate our future thoughts and our future goals in a way that always can help us move forward to them. And sometimes moving forward to them is just doing a little bit more of what we're doing so that we don't get used to it. We don't become normalized to this. Not everything needs to be a great change. So it will depend on our situation and how to use anticipation. In closing, let's talk about movement because that's something that you do come around to at the end of the book and your conclusion around this idea that it is in the movement and movement towards our goals where true happiness lies or where we can find the good life. Can you elaborate on that? This is a way of seeing how the three states, boredom, frustration, anticipation, all come together. I think they have a common aim, and their aim is to help us move. They help us get from one state to another. And so boredom takes us from states of dissatisfaction and perceived meaningless to ones that are not, that are hopefully more satisfying to us, more meaningful to us. Frustration gives us the energy that we need to keep pursuing our goals, or in extreme cases, it might force us to give up those goals that we cannot achieve and find new ones. And anticipation, finally, gives us a clear view of the future. It helps us define ourselves in light of our future and become who we want to be. So putting them all together, it's this struggle to keep ourselves moving. And we now know from decades of research that if we're able to motivate ourselves to move from one state to another, we're better adjusted. We have better chances of becoming successful at our jobs, having better interpersonal relationships. So I think what's key here is to try to move, is to try to be on the move, embrace the transition, having goals and keep pursuing them. And that requires that unavoidably we're going to find situations in which we're stuck, but let's not stop there. Let's figure out how we can do the best we can, how we can utilize the stuckness, the being stuck, the emotional reactions that we have to keep on moving. So if there's kind of a, the tack line for this is just keep moving and use your emotions to take us to where we want to go. Where can people find out more about you and your book? They can visit my website at lpidoru.net and they can find information about my work, the research I'm doing, and also about Propelt. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Andreas. Thank you for being on The Good Life. My pleasure. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.